This week, Luis, we have an exciting announcement. Um, we are really excited to announce that we've partnered with a great company called FTX. And if you're wondering, well, what is FTX? Basically, they're a safe exchange where people can trade things like cryptocurrencies, NFTs, and other digital assets. New chaos in the world of cryptocurrency. FTX shocked investors by declaring bankruptcy this week. It spent millions making sure its name was seen and known. They're regulated in the U.S. and other places around the world. The big difference between cryptocurrency and the rest of the currencies that we are used to in this world is that there is no safety net whatsoever. There is no regulatory guidance. It's important to find a, a safe, you know, trustworthy place, and, and FTX is that place. Obviously, the SEC, the CFTC now investigating FTX's handling of customer funds. The safe and regulated place that you can go. There's no regulatory oversight, no consumer protections, no licensure, no insurance, no net capital, no transparency, no sunlight. We have no idea what's going on inside of these entities. And, uh, you know, in a wild world, especially a new one like the world of blockchain, that can be very valuable to know that this is a company that is going to stand behind their product and that you can trust is going to do the right thing. Search warrants, arrests, all of those things are going to happen very quickly. This is worse than Theranos. This is worse than Madoff. We can't recommend them highly enough. Welcome to another episode of Lucky Paper Radio. I am Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, the wolf of the Cube community, Maddox. I don't get it. I feel like you're like a fixer of oh, random... That wolf. That wolf. The okay. Pulp Fiction wolf. Okay, sure, yeah. I was like, just thinking about Pulp Fiction the other day. What were you thinking about it? I was just... Th- I just had the, the, the what does Marcellus Wallace look like just stuck in my head. Mm-hmm. You know what? Anyway, so yeah, what do I do? Why am I the wolf? I, mean, I feel like there if there is... A small problem to be solved with technology in the cube community. You oftentimes crop up to uh, to fix that problem. I'm talking specifically about the whatever we're calling it, the list maker, the tabler labeler, the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the tool that I you kind of like Codex Shredder. I think that's a, a cutesy name that you came I, up with. I am so loath to just name a magic thing after a card because that's what everybody does. Mm-hmm, that's yeah. everything. And it also, I feel like it's hard to remember those things often because you're like, I know it's named after a magic card. But I don't remember which one. And so it's not very memorable either. I can't bring myself to just like f- be fully on board with that. But it, it does make sense. You could also go with Ledger Shredder, though. I feel I like that one that is it's more... It's not really shredding the Ledger. It's kind of doing the opposite. It's it's pro-Ledger. But it is shredding the Codex. I, yeah, that's true. The Shredder is the, is the consistent part. part. is the same. Now I think the you... problem is that Ledger Shredder is like a more in the zeitgeist card. Sure, yeah. So it would yeah. be more confusing to call it that Codex Shredder. I mean, some people listening probably don't even know what Codex Shredder does. It's like they never built a lantern, lantern control. control EDH deck like I did that one time. Boy, was that a mistake. That was awful. That was I not you had fun a good magic. time with it. That was when I learned that I think the worst card to play with in Commander is Telepathy. It's just awful. It's like, what if all of the hidden information was gone and this became instead a puzzle of don't mess up. Hey, hey, don't mess up because you know all the information. So if you mess up, it's on you. I think one of the meanest I've been to somebody in a game of Magic was when they played Telepathy. I, I feel was it little, me? I, no, it wasn't you. It was somebody, some rando. Because this was like six years ago. Yeah, this was, was years and years ago. Commander. Some rando at LGS. And the issue was, I think this was, you know, they drew a bad second seven and they ended up mulliganing like six 
times. And everybody was like, yeah, I guess just take another mulligan. And they just kept doing and it. And then they did turn one and to eleven. And then at the end, they were so that. excited. They were like, oh my God, I get to play this card. I'm so excited about it. And they were so excited. Boy. Turn one, they played telepathy. And I'm just like, buddy, you just ruined this. Like, I was very just straightforward. I was like, that card sucks. That's ruined this game. Like, I'm not wow, going to be able to keep track behavior. of all this. And I, yeah, I, immediately, for toxic pod I immediately just like completely made mistakes and couldn't keep track of everything all the information that was there and it was it was just uh you know you know i i I can forgive people (laughs) for thinking it would be fun because yeah it's i really enjoy the attitude towards magic that's like i'm gonna take this card that is kind of bad it does a weird thing and try and like have fun with it the problem is that you can't actually have fun with telepathy it's impossible there's no fun to be had hidden information is a really really important part of what makes magic fun yeah exactly it's like, what if you just replaced every draw set with a demonic tutor? There's a card that does that, right? Yes, I think because it just had some weird interaction with some new card that spiked at some oh, legend from know. Lorwyn, I think. And we don't, you don't want to remove that variance either. Oh, every single draw step, go and find the exact right card in your deck and don't mess up. Hey, don't look, mess up. Hey, look, get the right one. <laughs> don't screw up and get the wrong one. It's not fun. You got to give yourself a little bit of leeway. The variance allows people to hide. Their poor skill, it's me so included. <laughs> the variance allows me to hide my poor skill in variance. I can be like, well, I simply didn't know that or didn't draw the correct thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's nice to have you know that. I mean, this have is related. Isn't it terrible when you keep a sketchy hand and then your opponent thought seizes you and you're just like, oh, now, I, now you have to know about this hand that I kept? I don't know how this is, but I feel like I'm always on the other side of that equation. I'm the one always <laughs> duressing or thought seizing my opponent and them going, oh, no. <laughs> um... I concede so you don't see my hand. <laughs> concede is a special action yep, that's, in response. That's all mountains and black spells. That's that's what I chose. I will also say that I think I am maybe more likely to mulligan more hands than I should than keep a suspect hand. I think my heuristic falls on the other side of that where I'm like, oh, five lands, I can do better than this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I definitely don't mulligan Sometimes I enough. can't, and I should have not mulliganed. So by our powers combined, Anthony, we should we just... Make one person statistically our mulligan decisions are perfect perfect without flaw anyway yeah i do like to solve problems with software you took a dig you took a dig you took a big deep breath in and i thought you were going to try and do a segue but then you just called back to your nickname callback it's like a segue in terms of the rhetorical devices of podcasts anyway if you have a magic problem out there that involves a list of cards get in touch with anthony as he continues to work on the codex shredder we got so much stuff. I need to fix. A if bunch you have a of better name with the cube map, I need to fix a bunch of issues with this scratch pad, which I'm actively using to record this podcast. It's too much software. These are pretty small issues, though. Okay, all things considered. Sure. Yeah. Let's. I mean, I love Cube Cobra, but there's some pretty big issues on Cube Cobra right now. So that's another thing I could be doing is contributing more to Cube Cobra. I did one tiny, tiny little feature there once. It was a really good feature. I really I appreciate it. it. But I think we can't just talk about uh, your software this entire episode. Though I do want to say, if someone has a better name for the thing that just allows you to uh, format a table of cards with various information, it's like the most nerdy, detail-oriented, data transformation-y tool. If you get a better name for that thing, hit us up. It's hard to name things. So we're not going to name things in this episode. Instead, Anthony, we're going to talk about the new mechanics from Magic's latest set, The Brothers War, and give our first impressions of those mechanics and how they might interact with cube because that is the format that we love the most you did pre-release last night correct i did i was traveling out of town i have not yet touched a brother's war card what are your first impressions of having played the set presumably in four matches so far so obviously there's a lot of recency bias in this but uh i think it might be one of my favorite sets ever immediately i think this set is super super cool I, just looking at the mechanics, thought it would seem like a really cool set because we'll get into the details, but overall, the set seems to be about artifacts mm-hmm. and graveyards. Yep. 
And I feel like if you were to look at some of the most popular themes that people tend to design their cubes around or design their environments around, I think artifacts and graveyards are two of the most common ones, partially because they are broad enough, they kind of touch any kind of thing, and they're flexible enough to be paired with really any other type of mechanic or strategy. That flexibility is really nice, but also because I think it's just something fundamentally fun about reusing your resources in your graveyard and having this access to that as a live zone instead of just your discard pile. And there was something great about artifacts being largely colorless, though this set obviously has a lot of plays on that particular part of that effect. And being able to kind of fit in any deck also provides a lot of flexibility in the draft. So I, I can see how this would be a particularly fun set just right out of the gate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th I think there's something about just the graveyard very much representing sort of the whole structure of the game. And it's this resource that builds up over the course of a game that really lets you highlight and, and visualize sort of the long-term strategy uh, of, of a particular game of Magic that makes it really fun. And like you say, yeah, just everything can touch the graveyard in a mechanical sense. If you have uh, just like creatures naturally go to the graveyard, but it can be used as a resource for things like delve. And if you end up discarding stuff, you can have other cards that interact with things in the graveyard or just mechanics entirely built around it. There's so many ways that you can just have stuff that works with it. So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of space for cool decision-making there. Also in a more broad sense, I've been teaching uh, a new person to play Magic lately, which has been fun. I like to do that every once in a while, just bringing them into my hobby. And it's always fun watching somebody realize for the first time that, oh, that card I use is not actually just irrelevant and gone forever. Like, there's something about knowing that you have Graveyard Matters stuff in your deck, even if it's just a little bit of it, mm -hmm. that every single spell you cast, you're like, that could still be relevant. I could still use that later on. I feel like that feeling is is a nice part of why Graveyard Matter stuff is so fun. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think that's a very natural experience that a lot of players have with all kinds of games. When you discover something that seems like a downside or a negative can actually be turned into an upside is just a really cool and exciting moment. Let's just dive into these mechanics then. We're going to go over them in the order that the official Mothership article goes over them. We'll put that article in the show notes, obviously, so you can see the official explanations of these mechanics there. Anthony, our first mechanic is Prototype. This is a new ability found just on artifact creature cards that basically allows you to cast the artifact creature in two modes. You can either cast it for the regular cost in the top right, as you would expect, or there is a little kind of rules text box within a rules text box that allows you to cast the creature for its prototype cost, which in all cases in this set, the main mana cost for these creatures is a colorless value and it's a higher number and the prototype cost is a colored mana cost with a lower mana value so basically you're adding color and paying a cheaper cost and you get that creature with all the same abilities just with a different power toughness text box so really modal creatures where you have a big version and a small version abilities remain the same but for different mana costs you get different combinations of power and toughness every mechanic is kicker anthony I was going to say, you know, we're just going to talk about uh, this particular set's three variations on Kicker. This is a little bit different than Kicker, though. I mean, it's obviously a lot different. It's that's well, just a... <laughs> I appreciate that they really leaned into the aspect of this that can't be done with Kicker, namely that the cheaper cost is the one that has colored mana value. Exactly, yeah. You know, obviously you can imagine, uh, I'm looking here at Fre Frexian Flesh Gorger, which I think is maybe the most flashy of the prototype cards, and this has a regular mana value of seven generic mana, or a prototype mana value of one black black. So you could imagine making a card that was one black black for this 3-3, three, three, or you pay a kicker of four and you get a 7-5, but you can't 
pay for that mana cost with seven green, which you can, of course, do with Phyrexian Flesh Gorger. So I feel like they've leaned into, like, the one thing that makes us a little different from Kicker, which is that the larger mana value mana cost is actually much less restrictive. Right. I mean, what I, one of the things I really love about this set, in addition to just, even with the tiny bit of experience I've had with it so far, it being, like, very fun to play, is the fact that it is this top-down design where they had to solve these really weird problems, and I think they did it in a very cool way. So one of the things I wanted to do is just make this set be all about artifacts because that's what the story was about. It was about Mishra and Urza digging up all these weird Thran artifacts. Two tech bros just yeah, well, mm, yeah mm, just throwing just burning tech at each the other. world down. Yeah, it's basically that feels just really a, it's basically just Elon Musk <laughs> and Mark Zuckerberg. Yikes. Um, anyway, so they also really <laughs> want to lean into. The fact that those artifacts were colorless in the story and at that time in magic, I think, as well as at that time in sort of the, the timeline of the history of the multiverse and the fiction of magic. But they know they have this issue uh, that if you put a ton of colorless cards into a set, they can end up just in a lot of different decks and you sort of lose some of the, the diversity in terms of deck construction. Right. If all these prototype costs were also just generic mana value and had no color associated with them, then a huge part of drafting and deck building would just be, well, take the most powerful cards right, because absolutely. we'd lose... Well, I think we talked about it in the last episode, the value of the color power. we lose this additional force that is pushing us to choose specific combinations of cards instead of just playing the most raw powerful ones. Yeah. So the fact that they figured out a way to say, this looks like a colorless card, it's a classic artifact, but there is still, in terms of a mechanical sense, this kind of weird restriction. And I, I kind of like the way that plays out as well, that you can technically put these cards into a deck that doesn't have the, the whatever the color is for the prototype version. Of course. But to really optimize them, you do want that. So it's it's a cool level of modality. And it, it honestly kind of just makes sense in a way because it's like, okay, I want to be able to play this my black deck. I'm usually going to play it as a three mana card. If I can get to seven mana, it's like, okay, whatever. You've, you've got seven mana. Who cares what colors you have at this point? It's You're, you're good for it, right? From a cube design perspective, I really like that I mean, again, my first impression of these cards was like, great, kicker, but more complicated. Mm -hmm. Pew! Super duper. <laughs> then I thought about it more, and I think from a cube design perspective, it's really interesting that these are kind of like split cards in mm -hmm. that they are either, in most cases, this Phyrexian Flesh Gorger is a 3-mana three 3-3 three, three with these abilities, or it's a cheat target for your green ramp deck, right. or a cheat target for your Goblin Welder deck, or a big ramp target if you have a big artifact ramp deck with Metal Worker and a bunch of Mana Rocks or something. And in that case, you can actually just ignore the black part. Like, I'm never planning on doing that. I just need another Tinker target. And mm -hmm. so now I have one, and it didn't take a whole slot in my cube that otherwise would just be dedicated to this pure, narrow cheat payoff because this card is normally a black three drop, and now it's also sometimes this sort of tinker, big artifact payoff, which I think is a really cool layer for cubes that do have big ramp decks, artifact cheat decks, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, and even just if you're thinking in like a more fair kind of reanimator, this is just more likely to get into the graveyard as a big thing. If it's just like a thing you cast on three, maybe it trades off with something, or trades off with two things because it's got menace, and then it's just a big thing in the graveyard if you want to reanimate or unearth it or whatever you're going to do. Yeah, this mechanic does have a couple of interesting synergies with reanimation effects like you mm -hmm. play it as a cheap creature it dies in the course of normal combat but you reanimate it as a big creature also with blink effects if you ephemerate one of these cards you cast it for its cheap cost blink it it enters the battlefield again as its main mode the much bigger more powerful creature so it's got a little some cute shenanigans you can do there and uh yeah overall i think the mechanic is going to play really nicely it's not without criticism though First of all, I think the cards look a little bit janky, to be honest. That is my one criticism as well. The frame is 
it's a little it's a, not the most elegant looking yeah i mean i think it effectively communicates what they need to communicate it's effective but i don't think it's particularly beautiful which right. may matter to you or may not matter to you my bigger complaint is i think there's going to be memory issues with these cards because when the card is in play there is no indication of what mode it was cast in so i i see what you're saying but i think that and, and that's definitely something that crossed my mind as well i think that's going to be less of a problem than it seems like it's going to be specifically because when you're playing a game, you sort of have the whole context of that game, the history with it. I, I agree. If you're just like looking at a random board state, that could be a problem. But if you're looking at your opponent's board state and they have less than seven lands in play, or, you know, they do have seven lands in play, but you remember this Phyrexian Flesh Gorger has been in play for six turns. It can't be the big version. I'm, I'm now, I'm, I'm talking myself in the other direction because then I'm just reflecting on everything we just said about, you know, reanimation and blinking yeah. and all these kinds of things. So yeah, I think it's there. I think that it's definitely in limited in like standard. I think it's not going to be as much of an issue, uh, but maybe in some cube environments where it's just like this is this one random prototype card yeah. that could be more of a problem. Yeah, I think it is in the same category as like it's a little thing. You're not going to miss it mm-hmm. 95% of the time, but every once in a while there will have been some big board that was complicated and there was some big shift in that board and now it's like actually was that and you'll be able to work backwards and figure it out it's never it's probably never going to be like totally devastating but those are the little things that add up that make cube really complicated and make it that in combination with 10 more small little things that you said would be easy to track mentally is what makes it difficult to play a game of cube more likely for you to make a mistake and so i think it is a downside for me a a moderate downside but overall i do still really like the cards and and like what they bring to the table because i do love modal effects and i don't actually have any cubes that i think would benefit from both sides of the sort of split card effect that i described where it's either a cheat target or it's a colored card because my cubes that would want the cheat target are like the degenerate micro cube and there it's like you don't care about the prototype cost casting fair creatures is not really on the menu and i don't have any cheat strategies in my main button magic cube so i'm really actually more excited for these for other people's cubes for cubes that do have welder tinker channel big artifact mana that kind of stuff i think that's where these cards are really going to shine and allow people to have slots do double duty in their cube design thus making picks a little less prescriptive in uh, decks that otherwise maybe have a little more required uh, real estate in a cube in order to be viable. Yeah, something else they've done with these cards I think is pretty cool that differentiates it from a lot of these other sort of classic mechanics is because it's this creature that is going to have one text box but is going to be multiple different sizes, a lot of these creatures have effects that care about the power or toughness of that creature. So, for example, the Flesh Gorger, uh, it has ward based on the creature's uh, power, which just means if you cast it for the, the full cost, you also actually get a better ability. Or another one that I think a lot of people are going to be excited about is Arcane Proxy, which lets you buy back an instant sorcery based on its power and that's going to change depending on which half of it you cast so it's cool to see here's a text box that's going to be the same for both sides of this card but it's going to function a little bit differently yeah i mean for example a way i think this would be a little more elegant in terms of board state like if the prototype cost said you can cast this creature for the prototype cost if you do it enters the battlefield with four minus one minus one counters on it or something that would be different in some ways obviously i'm sure they Mm -hmm. didn't want to put minus one minus one counters in the set for a variety of specific reasons to this set but I think I would prefer that just for the legibility of the board, right? Like, you just get this thing, it's got those counters on it, and there's some indicator that, like, this was cast for the cheap mode as opposed for the uh, expensive mode. But, I don't know, the grand scheme of things, I, th- I, think, it's, I think it's important. It's, just, it's one of these small things that we talk about a lot being relevant, especially as they accumulate, and you have a lot of small things in your cube like that. But it's not going to stop me from testing these cards or the ones that I'm more interested in. Yeah, I mean, the other thing they could have done, obviously, is double face cards, but boy, am I glad they didn't. I'm glad it's not a double face card. I will definitely say that. 
So the next headline mechanic for the set is Power Stones. This one's pretty simple. It's just a new sort of trinket artifact token like we've had with food and blood and clues in the past. We now also add Power Stones to the list. It's an artifact token that has tap, add one colorless mana. This mana can't be spent to cast non-artifact spells. So it can still be spent on artifacts and it can yep. also be spent to activate any kind of abilities. Yep, regardless of whether that ability is from an artifact source. So right, exactly. It's essentially a little mana rock. You're making a little... What is the canonical colorless mana rock? We have mana lift for producing colored mana. Is there a canonical I shorthand? I mind stone, but there's got to be but just that one's like... so good because you can cycle it. Hmm. Who knows? It's a little token that can produce colorless mana, but, but with those restrictions, which I think are going to be pretty substantial. This mechanic to me seems like a great mechanic for Artifact Matters cubes because... If your cube cares about artifacts, obviously, then you can use that mana from those power stones to cast a lot of more spells in the cube than you would otherwise be able to cast in a cube without an artifact theme. But also, more importantly, making artifact tokens oftentimes matters in cubes that care about having a density of artifacts, even if you don't necessarily plan to get the most mileage out of tapping that artifact for mana. We see things like food, blood, treasures matter just because now your artifact count is six artifacts on board. If it turns on Metalcraft or whatever, it does a thing in your artifact matters cube that is outside of the actual rules text, the function printed on the token itself. Yeah, I almost think it could just say, you know, you could have a card that just says, make an artifact token. And that would still be very cool. Like, the fact that it has some a application sometimes, I think, makes it make a lot more sense. It reminds me of, like, how to keep an Is It Mage busy, right? Sure, that, yeah. That mystery booster card that what just do, do puts itself back cast in your spell. hand and does nothing. It just is a cast spell trigger. If you had, like, a, yeah, has artifact token would be... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think you could make that mechanic. It's the kind of thing that'd be confusing to, like, yeah. really new players. They'd be like, what is this? Why do I care about it? But that mechanic could absolutely exist, and you could definitely develop cards around the marginal value of just adding an artifact to play. Yeah, and I feel like this is actually a little bit similar to Decayed Zombie Tokens, which also felt like kind of bad. It was like, this is a lot worse than a regular zombie. Uh, these are a lot worse than clues, a lot worse than food in most contexts. But the fact that it just is this resource that you can use now is super cool, and it actually feels much more reasonable to use that resource. Uh, I definitely had a lot of fun making Power Stones and sacrificing them to draw c cards yesterday, and I, I think it's going to be a cool feature of this set. I do think people are going to, because the rules text of this token has a restriction, mm -hmm. they're going to think, oh, this is bad, because I can so clearly see an alternative world where it was a manolith yeah. token or whatever and think that it's just bad because there is a restriction on it. But like you said, that restriction allowed them to print cards that aggressively produce power stones at a rate they would not have been able to do if it was producing manolith tokens because it would have been broken. Yeah. And so it's a it's another balancing mechanic that we see this all the time in sets when, when a when a mechanic is worded to sound somehow like a downside or a restriction, people tend to rate it more low than if it right. didn't have to be worded that way for whatever reason. It's also cool that it has a couple different ways that it can be used. You can use it as this sort of resource in a deck where you're going to be sacrificing them for value or, you know, care about having a lot of artifacts on board. It can also be used as, you know, de described and just cast a bunch of big artifacts. So it definitely has that aspect as well, where if you're building an environment specifically about big artifacts, you can use them as intended as well. So I, I think this is really going to appeal mostly to cube designers with cubes that care about artifacts in some substantial way. I think outside of that, the restriction is going to be annoying. Like if you don't have a big artifact theme and you're mostly making that token just to say has artifact for some random card that has that or to activate abilities or something, I do think you're going to feel that more. And these cards are probably not balanced for cubes that 
are not playing an artifact theme, uh, given given the restriction on power stones, is my guess for the most part. But if you are playing an artifact theme, I think that this it's very appealing and it does allow you to have both sides of that coin, like you said, like you can use it to actually cast big spells, which means that you can afford to have this sort of ramp strategy woven throughout whatever the rest of your deck is doing, because these cards that produce power stones also do other things, right? They're not just producing power stones. Yeah, another aspect, though, about the the balance that you mentioned is if you look through the set, there are a ton of cards that have really, really expensive activated abilities, you know, things that cost right, like seven big mana or sinks, eight yeah. uh, big mana sinks, which I think makes sense in the set because you're going to have a bunch of these uh, power stones sitting around so you can actually maybe get to those effects pretty quickly. But that might just mean that a lot of individual cards in a, a cube environment just might not make as much sense, even if it's like, oh, here's this geology enthusiast, and maybe it'd be cost at three mana to draw a card in a normal set. Here it costs six, because you're expected to have a bunch of power stones. So that might mean that a bunch of individual cards just, you know, have wildly different sort of power levels in different contexts. It also gives us more just raw material of cards that have mana sinks. I love including a certain density of cards with mana sinks in my cube so that we really strongly avoid the, like, both players are top decking and it comes down to whoever draws the best cards kind of game state, and having places to sink your mana is very valuable. It's one of those things that has decreasing value as you scale up the density, though, because what you really want is most players to have access to a mana sink in a game, because the second mana sink is not worth anything right. unless it's better than the first one and the first one was worth nothing right you only need the one medicine generally speaking and so i like to have a little smattering of those across all the different strategies and all the different colors in my cube and this will provide more options for more cubes that want some sort of mana sink, even if they are perhaps a little overcosted relative to what they might be in a set without power stones one other note on the complexity is I think that is really going to come up when you have a lot of spells with alternate costs or things like Unearth, uh, things that come out of the graveyard. A lot of those things you would look at and be like, okay, this card either could be written as an alternate cost or it could be written as an activated ability. And the Power Stones are going to work for those abilities, but not for the alternate costs, which yeah. that's where I think it might get a little bit tricky sometimes. So something to be aware of. Yeah, and uh, on that note, Unearth is back in this set. Unearth is an activated ability, Anthony, not an alternate casting cost, so... You can pay unearth costs with power stones, even if the unearth thing is not an artifact. Though I think in this set, everything with unearth is an artifact. Just as a reminder, unearth is an activated ability that can be used from the graveyard and it allows you to put the creature back into play, give it haste, and then exile it if it would leave play or at the end step, basically. You can't really save it. It goes away pretty much all the time, except for very rare, weird edge cases. Here we see a couple new interpretations on Earth. The first is Unearth has been introduced on non-creature artifacts. So previously Unearth was only a creature ability. It made sense that you would unearth a creature. It would get one attack or one activation of its ability and then go away again. Now we have Unearth on non-creature artifacts. All these non-creature artifacts have some sort of activated ability. I think they all require tapping as part of their cost. So you can get kind of one shot at that non-creature effect one last time. We also see, I believe for the first time, all colorless cards with colored unearth abilities so similar to the prototype cards these are on cards that are colorless mana costs for their front side and then the unearth ability is a colored mana cost which i think is will play differently than prototype partially because of how these cards are designed they're not all really expensive necessarily on the front side though many of them are uh, this is i think a good example of we've talked before about how much we enjoy having these kind of subtle motivations to maybe splash a color that don't make a card fully gold where it's only playable in a specific two color deck or two color combination and i think 
many of these cards in certain environments will be playable even if you ignore the unearth part and then that unearth becomes a kind of upside like the off-color kicker costs or the off-color spectacle cost on Rick's Mighty Reveler, a card we've talked about before and really enjoy. Yeah, I think that's similar to Prototype. This is just an awesome way for them to make a bunch of colorless artifacts that look like colorless artifacts, but to really optimize them, you do need that, that particular color. It does kind of work the opposite way that the first thing you do with it is going to be colorless, so it's a little bit easy to get this into play the first time, and then you get the second and half when you actually have the right color to cast it, which I think is just going to play well in a lot of contexts where you still want to be able to play your cards, and then later in the game where you have access to more colors of mana, you'll be able to use the unearth cost, but I think that just will work much in a different way that's just a lot smoother, where I feel like the prototype cards, in most contexts, I think are, are going to be colored things, you're going to want the access to those colors, and you're going to, want to, going to want that access quickly in the game. Here, you have a little bit more flexibility in the way that things play out. And we see a mixture of unearth costs that are cheaper than the same cost as or more expensive than the front side of the card. So unlike the prototype cards where there's a very clear pattern, the front side of all the prototype cards is an expensive colorless spell, and the prototype cost is a lower mana value colored cost. Here the unearth costs are kind of all over the place. There's less of a pattern to be identified. Yeah. Something else that's cool is a lot of these cards, they've stapled like enter the battlefield or attack or death triggers on it. So... Not only are you just unearthing a creature to get one more attack in, often you're you're unearthing it to get some extra ability too, which is very cool. I think unearth is cool as a mechanic. I, I, I like it. I think it's clean and it allows for some like explosive plays. I love haste as a mechanic, honestly. I think haste is a very, very cool effect that allows you to kind of sequence things in these explosive turns that make for fun and dynamic games. And being able to have a haste card in your deck that doesn't always have haste in most cases doesn't have haste but still will allow for these really explosive moments i think is 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 pretty fun it's also fun i think with unearth cards to think about discarding them for value if you you know if you don't ever plan to cast it you get to you know use your faithless looting style effects and loot them away and then cast them out of your graveyard so i think this is a a great mechanic for cubes of all kinds and having all of these new unearth cards is going to be just great ammunition for cube designers yeah, I mean, definitely we've we looked at some mechanics that will be very linear, and you definitely want a, a sort of critical mass of that mechanic to make them work in a context. These unearth cards really don't require anything special. You can take whichever ones on the card-by-card basis makes sense for any particular environment. They will likely work, and they work with a lot of other things. So like you're saying, if you have some looting, some discard, some cares about artifacts, some cares about death triggers or graveyard size, there's so many opportunities for these cards to work with other mechanics. And I, th- I think I might have a new favorite magic card among these unearthed cards. Maybe we should save it for next week's episode, but I really, really uh, adore one of these cards. Let's tease it. Okay. You can tune in next week for our second part. I guess I didn't even do the whole introduction to what we're doing here. This is the first of three <laughs> set interview episodes where we go over the mechanics and give our first impressions. Our next episode next week will be our personal cube inclusions. So in the context of our own cubes, what cards we're excited to play. And then finally, we will be I didn't even talk about the survey either. You gotta you gotta be on me when I'm not good at hosting this show. You gotta start being critical. Put all the notes next time. <laughs> and then the part three of our three-part set review will be a community review where we review the results of our survey, which is out now. So if you're listening to this and you have a cube, go to luckypaper.co slash survey slash BRO or check out the show notes for that link and fill out that survey and tell us what you are playing in your own cube so that we can give a broad impression of what's happening across the cube world as a whole. And in that time, Anthony, I'm going to try and guess what this card that you like so much is of the unearthed cards. 
There's only 20 to choose from, so I feel like I've got a decent shot. I think you have a great shot. Because yeah. I, I can rule out a number of them pretty mm-hmm. quickly, mm-hmm. so... But you can play along, listeners. See if you can guess what card is maybe Anthony's new favorite magic card, which is a, a big statement. I mean, it doesn't resonate with me in the same way as a lot of my favorite cards, but it's just a card I look at and I'm like, I want to put this into every single one of my environments. Tune in next week. Find out if you're right. So the last sort of headline mechanic that we have here is meld. So this isn't a huge part of the set. There's actually only three pairs of cards which have meld, but it's... A, and they're all at mythic rare, correct? They're kind of a mixture. Mythics, rares, and I think even uh, uncommons is one half of, of Urza. But the way that this But mechanic, one half is always mythic rare. Sure. So you can't possibly meld a thing without having at least one mythic rare in your pool. I didn't see anybody uh, meld at the pre-release yet. A couple people had just one half of a meld card, and they were really disappointed. Yeah. So the way this, this works, this is actually a returning mechanic from... Shadows over Innistrad. Shadows over Innistrad. Uh, and the way it works is... You or maybe have... Eldritch Moon. I think it was Eldritch Moon. Shadows was the one that was previewing it, and then yes, Eldritch Moon was right. the Eldrazi actually, actually arrived. So that's when we get yeah. Brazella and... The rats and the rats are cool. And the hand the battlements. township yeah, is yeah, amazing. Yeah. Um, so the way that this mechanic works is we have two paired cards that on the back face each have half of a card and you assemble An them. Extra into large one card. Extra large double card, uh, which is super cool and splashy. Uh, but in a lot of cubes, how do you think this is going to function? Well, we don't see many of the Mel cards from Eldritch Moon see play in most cubes because it is pretty difficult to draft both halves of these cards, get them both in play, and they all have some condition that needs to be met in order for them to flip as well. Sometimes you pay a cost, sometimes you just have to have them both in play and get to your end step. There are different terms by which they flip. It's not a inherent part of the mechanic. It depends on the specific design of the cards themselves. Right, so among these three pairs, one of them is a static ability. You have to have a certain number of lands in your graveyard and also have these these two cards. One of them is attacking with the two cards at once, and the other is just uh, an activated ability. If you have both, you can meld Urza into a giant planeswalker with five abilities and a static. I have seen some cube designers do draft packages, so very often, I haven't actually like evaluated these meld cards individually yet, but in Eldritch Moon, it was the case that oftentimes one half of the meld pair was pretty aggressively costed and like playable. I'm thinking like Gisela and Handware Garrison, mm-hmm. and then the other half was maybe a little less appealing, and so I have seen cube designers put the more appealing, more aggressively costed half of the meld pair in their cubes and basically say, if you draft this, you will get the other half of this meld pair for your deck construction if you want. That's definitely uh, an option. Outside of that, I do think it's going to be pretty rare to be able to draft both halves of these. And I wouldn't be excited about putting a meld pair in my cube unless both cards were individually worth inclusion on their own. And maybe that meld thing happens once in a blue moon. But I think it's going to be rare to find a cube that is balanced just right where you're happy to have either half of these meld cards as a completely standalone card in your cube. I could see it, though. I mean, it, that would be super cool, and I think that if uh, the sort of baseline of the, the two individual cards you're melding both make sense in your environment, so it's going to be sort of a, a case-by-case basis, then having that opportunity for every once in a while somebody's going to be able to draft both and flip them would be very cool to see. I will say that you know, this is not my favorite mechanic for obvious reasons i think but there's some which there's a reason they only made three of them in the set it's not like a a huge thing that's going to be present all the time but there's something to be said for the fact that like we both i think still remember the time you did assemble brazella in your sealed pool Mm -hmm. and it was amazing it was amazing probably still lost (laughs) having i don't think you lost having a mechanic that 
only comes up every once in a while does make it a lot more special, right? Yeah. Like, I, I think there's a there's a strong criticism of the mechanic. Like you mentioned, people have half of the metal card in their pool and just feel bad they don't have the other half and have no chance of doing it. That's going to happen a lot, I think. Uh, even if you put these in a cube, it's going to happen a lot unless you do the draft package thing. But the fact that it's a thing that does happen very rarely means that it retains that air of specialness. It's just, it, it's way more cool to do it because it doesn't happen that often and you get to put this splashy extra large magic card in the battlefield, which is... Which is pretty fun. So I, I will not lie. I have definitely dreamed of putting Brazella in an environment, but it is never aligned with all of my other various cube design goals. So it is yet to happen. That kind of does it for the named mechanics in this set, the mechanics that Wizards actually reviews in their article about the set. But there's other things going on here that I think are worth talking about. We already touched a bit on the graveyard matter stuff in this set, and there is quite a bit of it. There's a lot of graveyard recursion. I think we've seen an uptick in size-limited graveyard recursion, which I really like. So we have the equivalent of like reanimation spells, but we have an unearth-style effect where it cares about mana value as opposed to just getting back some giant creature, which definitely makes the mechanic more about value and less about combo, which uh, traditionally reanimation spells, reanimator as, an, as a strategy is very often a combo deck. Here, we see more kind of scaled versions of this effect that can only bring back smaller things that make it a more toolbox value-oriented effect as opposed to a combo effect, which I think is a great direction to take it. And we also see a decent bit of mill going on here, both as self-mill if you want to mill yourself, which obviously fuels your graveyard, fuels your own graveyard synergies, and a little bit of things that can actually mill your opponent too, which uh, can also be a theme. And obviously in a set where everyone's deck is going to care about the graveyard, mill becomes extra dynamic because it potentially makes your opponent's deck better, their hand better if you mill them, but you also get them closer to being milled out. So it's this cool kind of tension. I think that having more access to cards that fuel the graveyard, care about the graveyard, return stuff from the graveyard is just a net positive for the cube world as a whole. Because again, these mechanics I think are so broad and universally applicable that a lot of these cards I think are going to see playing a lot of cubes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think every set to some degree plays in that space and does something with the graveyard. Uh, but this really does go deep. It's almost 50 cards that, that care about the graveyard in some way. I think in addition to the cards that actually, you know, reward you for using the graveyard is a fair number of cards that interact with your opponent's graveyard. Um, I, th this sort of stood out to me as I was looking through cards, like, why is this uh, exiling things from the graveyard or putting things from the graveyard in the bottom of the library? And it's just because there is a lot of stuff that cares yeah. about the graveyard and you want to have some interaction for it. So I think having access to, to both more graveyard synergies, but also more graveyard interaction in especially ways that aren't totally all or nothing is a really good tool to have access to. Every set, we see a little bit of tribal these days, which yeah, I that's cool. That's, wasn't always true, right? I uh, I mean, Tribal's always been a big part of Magic, but I think they've definitely sort of hit a structure of limited formats where there's always like one or two tribes sort of sprinkled in, which I think is cool. Uh, in this case, we have... As opposed to whole Tribal sets, which historically have been kind yeah, of hard sure. to get, especially the limited play of those sets right. I think the last time we had a truly Tribal set was like Rivals of Ixalan, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's been a minute. I think it is maybe a more sustainable, better approach for them to kind of sprinkle a little bit of Tribal into every set, but never so much that you get that kind of on-rails drafting effect that we see in a lot of limited sets that go deep on tribal synergies. Right, so here we have soldiers in blue and white and a little bit in some other colors as well. And I think all that really means is if you're drafting a blue or white deck, every once in a while you'll have one or two of these additional uh, sort of payoff cards for soldiers, and that'll just change the way that you'll prioritize things a little bit. 
Another sort of cool tweak on it is, even though soldiers are a popular tribe, we've seen lots of both, you know, just soldier cards and things that care about soldier in the past, all the soldier tokens in this environment are artifact soldier yeah, tokens. Yeah, that's new. So I think that's a cool way to sort of bridge these soldiers with other sort of artifact and token synergies. Yeah, I, that's the first time we've seen that token, and, you know, obviously caveat about a million different tokens, and here's another different 1-1 one, one soldier, but this one is more meaningfully different yeah, than the ones that are human or not human. Yeah. And it will matter, right, for gameplay a lot more than the human or non-human ones will. Though that does come up, especially with, like, mutate cards, which is one of the reasons I think we see people, especially down on mutating cube, is because did my Elspeth produce a human soldier or a regular soldier? I have to go reread and check, and oops, I can't mutate onto it, which is a kind of a feel-bad. In addition to all these mechanics and themes, we also have a new cycle that I think is going to be really appealing to cube designers, Anthony, and that is a new cycle of monocolored commands. Commands are modal spells that give you four options and you always get to choose two from, which is, again, just a very specific... That's what a command has come to mean in magic, the same way that edict has come to mean target opponent sacrifices a creature, much to your chagrin. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Very much not uh, descriptive or intuitive, but that's that's part of the I magic mean, language. If you're making a command... You know how one day I'm making command, I give you four options and yeah, do some of these things. It makes sense that <laughs> commands are spells, yes. as opposed to ongoing permanence or something, so that makes sense. And then... The fact that you're a type of leader that makes like four different types of decisions and I don't know. Look, that's what it's come to mean, so just accept it. We've seen these cards since uh, Lorem was the first example of these where we got Austere Command, Cryptic Command, those sorts of cards. And uh, we've gotten others since in other sets. And here we return again to monocolor commands. These tend to be pushed in terms of their mana value and effect. So I expect these cards to be pretty good, which means they're going to appeal to a lot of people. And also just cube designers tend to like modal cards for a lot of reasons. We talk a lot about modality on the show, but giving your players options allows them to maybe flex their strategic muscles a little more and make more meaningful decisions about what effect they want at this point in the game, as opposed to being stuck with whatever card they happen to draw, which obviously it's not that simple, but modal effects can be very appealing to lots of different cube designers. So I expect these to be somewhat popular. Yeah, something else that's cool is, uh, even though I'm often a little bit down on on modal cards just because it's it's not very resonant, it's sort of just like, here, pick some of these options, it obviously does give you great sort of gameplay options, a lot of choice and agency, but in addition, I think a lot of these commands will often be meaningful in the, the, the things that you choose and the order they happen in. So, for example, in Titania's command, you can make tokens and then put counters on your creatures, and critically, the things happen in the order of the cards, so you get to choose and sort of structure what the spell is going to do based on the choices you make. And that's why we would never, for example, see like a textless promo of a command. That wouldn't make any sense because it's so important to remember not not just the modes, but the order (laughs) totally matters. They would never do a thing like that. No, that would be ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. Anything else you want to talk about? I think that's pretty much it. I mean, there's obviously uh, a lot more cards in the set that do a lot of things. We see a lot of typical uh, effects. Prowess is back, and plus one, plus one counters. Spells matter, all very cool. There's even a couple cards. You know, we talked about the three male cards. There's at least four cards that care about drawing your second card a turn, which I think Mm. is a cool mechanic that kind of overlaps really nicely with a lot of those spells matter mechanics. Um, So, yeah, even though these are kind of the the headlines, there's definitely going to be a lot more here for particular environments that have particular interests. 
I didn't tell you this, but uh, but friend of the show Bones slash Lucky Looter was nice enough to organize a draft of the Amakar Desert Cube while I was in Oklahoma. So I got to go Whoa. draft the cube with uh, with Bones and some members of his local play group. And I got to play with Fairy Vandal, which is a card that I love every time I get to play it. And every time I play it, I think, should I put this in the Bun Magic Cube? Like, it, it feels so good when I get to play it in other environments. And obviously, other environments are different contexts and different power levels. But uh, the card is so fun to play with. And I had a great time playing that cube. It's a really yeah. well-thought-out, very cool cube that we've talked about in the show before. And we'll link again. But people should check it out if they haven't. Damn, I'm jealous. I know. Can well, I play more cube next time? When you go to Oklahoma to visit our friend, then you can yeah, hit up Bones point. and uh, and make it happen. But yeah, I agree about Fairy Vandal, and I actually kind of like that mechanic altogether, just because it sort of forces players to structure and sequence their turns a little bit differently. You know, I did a lot often, of main phase Fairy exactly, Vandals yeah. in my in my deck because I happened to have ways to draw cards at sorcery speed, and it was like, or ways to only draw one more card, which right, exactly, obviously so. wouldn't be drawing two cards in my opponent's turn. So I just had to main phase that flash creature. I agree. I, I love this kind of effect. This, to me, is in the same sort of category as the things that trigger when you cast your second spell. It's like you already want to be drawing extra cards. Yeah. So designing cards that reward people for doing a thing they already want to be doing, already want to be multi-spelling, already want to be drawing a bunch of cards, it uh, just kind of makes for this fun snowballing kind of gameplay, but not snowballing in a bad way mm-hmm. because uh, it's not... It's, it's controlled. It's not just going on its own it's not snowballing it's not rolling down the hill on its own you need to keep fueling it and figuring well, out the way to maximize what i mean value. is that uh it, if you reward people for doing a thing that is already good sometimes the game state can kind of snowball True. in that player's yeah. favor uh and i don't think it's most of these cards i don't think are that kind of pushed they're not gonna like claw you back from being behind in most cases but it's just cool to have triggers that trigger on stuff that you want to be doing already it uh it makes for some real feel-good play patterns for sure so yeah, I mean, overall, I'm really excited about this set. I think that for some cubes, this is going to be a tremendous set where there's oh, for a sure. ton of colorless cards. I mean, let's talk about the Devoid cube that's going to get so many new cards I, from this I set. know that, that Dan is going crazy on Twitter about that cube, so... But even if you're not really focused on any of these themes that this set is really all about, I think there's still just going to be a ton of things that could be applicable just because those are really open and flexible mechanics. Yeah, I haven't gotten to play with the cards yet, but I, I'm excited about a lot of these mechanics. And I do think that just graveyard matters and artifacts and artifacts tend to be very appealing to lots of cube designers and for good reason. So I, I think this set will definitely be a big deal for people that have cubes that specifically focus on those things. And I think most cubes will still find a couple gems in there, even if they're not. That's it for this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. As I said before, but not early enough, I should have said it at the beginning. Tune in next week for our personal cube inclusions episode and then maybe the week after that maybe a week in between as we process the survey data we will have the community review coming to you in order to have your voice heard in that community review make sure you fill out the survey at luckypaper.co slash survey slash bro another good opportunity anthony to remind people that you made a fantastic tool uh, again wolf of the cube community you made a fantastic tool that allows people to pull up their past survey responses and have it automatically show them which cards they're still playing in their cube, show them their old ratings, show them how cards have aged in their cube or not, which is a really, really cool tool we've gotten a lot of positive feedback on. So uh, if you have answered previous surveys and you haven't checked that out, do check it out. It's very cool. And if you have not answered previous surveys, you should start answering them now so that in six months you can use that tool and look at your inclusions for Brothers War or whatever cool tool we build next and, uh, and get all the advantages of that. Yeah, it is really cool to sort of have that retrospect and even like look back at your comments about what you were thinking about a set and how your approach to your cube or approach to particular cards has changed. And as we say on the survey, all of that data is public. So if you want, you can even go search for somebody else's surveys and figure oh, out how well, you told it. <laughs> you told them. <laughs> I think they figured this out as well. It's just uh, a text some box. people did. Now more people are going to figure it out. 
yeah, the uh, all the survey data is public in a lot of ways. So uh, yeah, you can search Anthony Maddox mm-hmm. and uh, and see what he said about pass cards. Don't search me. All my answers are perfect. <laughs> I mean, you yours, don't have to look it up to yours know. are much more reliable. There's even I put a little histogram there, uh, which shows you based on your rating, are the cards still included? And yours, it's got more green on. It the does. Right side it does trend up that way. Mine's There's still an a, embarrassing amount of red in the threes because the whole point of a three is that you're supposed to not it's, cut it. Yeah, but, you're not supposed to cut those threes. But, you know. Anyway, check out all those tools. Check out the survey and tune in next week to hear us talk about the cards we are personally most excited about for our own cubes. That's it for this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. The show is produced by us reading about the mechanics of the new set. Anthony going to pre-release just for the content, just to help him uh, talk about it on the podcast. And then sitting down in my basement and speaking into microphones. Thanks for doing all that, Anthony. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to go do more pre-releases. I guess just for the content, not because I enjoy Magic the Gathering. Yep, that's the content. (sighs) Content grind. 